0: Welcome back to the Retro Horror Academy. My name's Daniel Richardson, and tonight we're going to be looking at The Year in Horror 1931. I'm not going to lie, it's I got two different feelings about tonight's show. One part of me is very much excited because we are now past The Silent Era. We are officially into talkies, and we're into the, you know, the main clutch of the, you know, universal monster, the golden era of the universal monster boom. So, that's fucking awesome. However, uh, I think the Academy may have made a controversial decision in its ranking, and I feel like this is, you know, we're, we're starting off on a hot episode kicking off the 30s but I also feel like this is going to get a lot of hate from the outside. But you know what the academy is here uh, not for you so much as it is just for us. So uh yeah, let's get into it, shall we? Now before we get started, let's talk about 1931 cuz it was a great year for horror. Uh you know, movies that came out that year, you know, you had Dracula, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, all, uh, universal and, uh, Dr. Rimmel High was a uh, paramount. Uh, again, we talked about this uh, last episode that, you know, universal kind of led the way for these, um, for this, you know, horror wave right here. Uh, it really all started kind of with Dracula. And then once it became a huge success, everybody followed. And so the next couple years is going to be huge for horror. And this would literally make major stars out of like Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Frederick March, I mean, they all just became household names and it was, you know, incredible. Uh, And it would launch their careers, especially in horror because Bela Lugosi and uh, Boris Karloff would go on to, uh, you know, be in several, not just, you know, sequels to, you know, the universal horror franchise and not, but also to several uh, Edgar Allan Poe uh, films as well. They team up in a lot of those. So, I mean, just a great start to the decade right here. Now, you know what we do on this show? We have, uh, we got five movies tonight that we're ranking uh, from 1931. Five horror films, if you will. But we always like to make the induction to the uh, Horror Hall of Fame. So, who are we going to induct into Retro Horror Academy's Horror Hall of Fame, class of 1931? I'm going to butcher his last name, and I apologize. Uh, I'll, I'll use his first name. His first name's a no, That's all you really need. But, uh, well, let me try this. Uh, Dante... Allegri, Is that right? We're going to call him Dante. So Dante, you know, we know him for his uh, divine comedy. Uh, you know, more importantly, Dante's Inferno, uh, which would go on to uh, make, uh, there was at least two films by this time of Dante's Inferno. One that came out in 1911, which we reviewed on this show, uh, which was, you know, iconic. It literally was just very groundbreaking breaking. For his time, but then it'll get remade again in 1924. Uh, Some of his writing has been used in other works, such as uh, I'd always butcher this name too, but uh, Maciste in Hell, the 1925 uh, fantasy horror film that we covered on this show as well. Which, uh, yeah, really liked it. And Dante, I mean, his spot in the horror hall of fame is basically for you know his words gave us the visuals for. What we see today as hell. Like, everything you see in these movies, the words that he put on the page to put the picture in your mind, that is what almost everybody's uh, interpretation of hell is. Uh, And for that, you know, contribution alone, he deserves his spot in the Horror Hall of Fame. So, Dante, welcome to this uh, prestigious club we have going here. Welcome to the Horror Hall of Fame. So let's get into it, shall we? We're gonna just jump right into it. We're gonna jump in with the number fifth or sorry, the number five horror film of nineteen thirty-one. And that movie is The Phantom. Uh mass killer stalking people inside of a old asylum. Uh that sounds like an awesome fucking movie. We didn't get that though. We didn't get that at all. Take a drink. I really need a co-host on this show, so I can switch out and get me a drink whenever I want. Anyways, um, no, we did not get that film at all. Um, this was, you know, once again, everybody's jumping on the horror bandwagon, and uh, this was a uh, Poverty Row jumping out here with this thing. Um, I don't know. It's it's an old dark house type movie, uh, very similar to um, the Cat and the Canary, and that's really the that's to me is the number one. Uh, old Dark House movie. I will always kind of refer to that. as my prototype, if you will. I know there's been some before it, and there's you know, going to be some after it, but for me, The Cat and Canary is the one. Uh, you know, when this movie came out, it got okay reviews, but a lot of people kind of said the same thing. Uh, it just kind of is very slow. Um, they thought that the two main leads were miscast. Uh, Guns Williams or Gwen's Williams? Oh, I can't think of the girl's name right now. I wrote down notes and I didn't write down the, the cast, but the, the main, uh, Arlene something, Arlene Ray or something like that, uh, Arlene Williams, it, it didn't matter. Either, either way, the uh, two uh, leads, the uh, the guy who plays Ace the reporter and his fiance, uh, they said they were miscast. And I'll tell you right now, I, I don't know, maybe they were. For me personally, and I think the Academy definitely agrees with me on this one because that's why it's so, so goddamn low on this uh, thing. I think personally, The movie itself is just bad all around. So here's my issue with it. I know we just made this transition from silent films to the talkies. And I know, you know, if you've ever seen the uh, musical, I know it's kind of weird talking about musical in here, but the musical Singing in the Rain, uh, the whole plot of that is literally these uh, actors who are trying to uh, transition from being these silent movie stars that they were into an era with sound. And uh, just kind of the hilarious, you know misadventures they have just trying to you know make that transition i feel like this movie epitomizes all of that because it's so clunky like you know we were talking about how with the cat and the canary uh not just because of the old dark house just you know in directing in general you know the camera is very fluid it moved around a lot but didn't feel like it was moving around for the sake of moving around did not feel like style over substance no it enhanced what you were watching This was just static shots. It felt like you were watching a stage play. And not just that, but it had that bad thing of like, I don't know, all the actors, they were kind of overacting a little bit, but it's almost like that kind of overacting like you see on the stage where they're trying to make sure that everybody can hear him in the back row. So they're just kind of like, hold up. What is happening now? You know, hey, what are you doing over there? There's a killer on the loose, I tell you. It's just a lot of that. Uh, the acting felt like is more out of like an adventure movie. Like uh especially this main guy who they said was Miss Cat which I guess, you know, maybe maybe they're right. Uh it seems like he's the kind of guy that comes out of like a you know the adventure, the uh, swashbuckling type of uh, adventure stories you'd see from this era, from the serials, you know, the reporter who's just like, I'll tell you, see, we're gonna head down here, and you know, it's gonna be dynamite, you know, just real fast talking, you know, listen here, Buster, I'll, I'll tell you what's what, you know, that kind of, you know, thing. It, it, it felt like I was watching something like they you know, a movie about treasure hunting, or you know, gotta rescue the princess from the evil king, or I don't know. It felt like something totally different than an actual horror film. Or even, I not mean, at this point, you know, horror's not even really a genre yet, but you, at this point, it kind of is. Like, everybody knows, like, dark dramas or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and it didn't feel like that at all. Uh, the other thing was just... Uh, sorry, I'm going to crack one open here. Um, the uh, other thing was, a lot of the dialogue was just... and I'm, I'm not saying... I know, maybe it is bad writing, which I'll get into that in a little bit. But it was just, like, the actual delivery of these lines were so bad and it like a lot of weird like pausing. Like, you know, you hear you, you like right now you can, you could tell like the sound of these old uh talking movies, you know, especially from the 30s and 40s. Just the crackle, the hisses, the pops that you hear on the audio soundtrack, uh in between talking. And so like you'd have these scenes where there'd be, like these, there'd be like three people on, on you know on on the frame on you know on screen and no one's talking. And then one guy will deliver his line. And then there's a good, without exaggerating, three to four seconds of just silence. So you're just hearing these awkward audio pops. And then the next guy will deliver his line. And again, it's like they're waiting. I don't know if they're like waiting for a crowd reaction or what. But it's just like, this happens throughout the entire show. Uh, Sorry, the entire movie. Uh, Luckily, it's only like an hour long. But my God, it's a long hour. Like, this was a brutal hour to get to. This is honestly... Again, try not to exaggerate, this may have been the worst movie I have seen on here. It, it, it rings up there at the Monster, but the Monster even, at least it had something kind of cool going for it, and it had Lon Chaney. This do not even have anybody in it that I recognize right now. Uh, Yeah, so you had a lot of, you know, so everybody's dialogue was like that. Everybody's just kind of waiting. Uh, and you'd have some people who just didn't deliver their lines good, like they just delivered them stiff and wooden. Then you had people who, like, they're a little bit like over-the-top ways, and There's a lot of comic relief, but it's like, it's not funny. The other thing was the writing itself was so bad. Like, at one point, I mean, I I guess I kind of figured it out, but I don't know. So, it starts off with a prison break. And, you know, again, we're having these really bad lines of dialogue. Well, this guy breaks out of the prison. He jumps onto a train. So, they're trying to shoot him off the train. And then a plane comes in, and he gets away. And they're just like, it's the Phantom. And I'm like, well, who's the Phantom? The guy who escaped or the guy who is flying the plane, because to me, I'm thinking, if it's the guy escaped, would you not have his real name? Like, I know it's the 1930s or whatnot, but like, come on, you're not just using the alias. They never say his real name, because they don't know who the Phantom is, so it's like, okay, it couldn't have been the prisoner then, right? It had to be the pilot. But then, as the movie goes on, there's like two or three villains that just kind of pop up. you have one guy who is... Stalking around the property like he's a phantom. He's got his face covered you know, with his cape or whatever, his cloak. And so you're just like, okay, that's the phantom. But it turns out he's not. It's a totally different guy who's a doctor that was already established. So they knew who this guy was in the asylum. And they're like, hey, it's Dr. You know, I forget the guy's name already. It's Dr. Andrews. And it turns out we know who the phantom is. It's Dr. Andrews. It's like, well, wait a minute. He's already established. So like, is he a, I don't I don't know. This movie was so poorly written and on top of that, almost everybody kind of looked the same. Like, everybody was just white and bland and boring. And, like, I don't know. there's only a hand. Like, he had one guy who looked like Robert Goulier. Uh, I don't know if you guys know who that is. But he was, like, a lounge singer turned pseudo-actor. He was in the third Naked Gun movie. Um, that guy, uh, there was a guy who looks kind of like him. And he's, like, and, and the women. And they were all kind of in different outfits, so I can tell them in part. But, yeah, like, the actual men, they were all just white guys in suits and hats. And it was just, like... Fuck you so I don't know uh, yeah the um, IMDB uh, looked at the score it has a current rating of 4.3 and that's that's clearly not good so yeah the phantom uh, I'd say avoid it, it it don't even feel like it's a horror film and I know us you know you can't say that for these early ones cause I know a lot of them were kind of bleeding into other genres but this is just trash. This is garbage. This is boring. That's the thing. It's not even fun garbage. It's just boring and dull and slow moving. And it's only an hour and it felt like so much fucking longer. Take a drink. So, we're going to move on now to the number four horror film of 1931. I am talking about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Dr. Jekyll uh you know, basically, he's drinking this potion, and it brings out his inner demons, his inner beast. It brings out Mr. Hyde. Uh, however, he can no longer control him as Mr. Hyde, you know, starts controlling him more and more. Uh, so, yes, we know the story. This is the most remade movie from this era, period. And, uh, yeah, they, they just keep making it. Uh, this is Paramount who brought this one out this time. Um, so... With this one, and you're going to hear this a lot with the next uh, two to three, uh, well, yeah, uh, movies on this list. I'm sure up until the, the code was put in uh, place, but this is a pre-code, uh, pre-the uh, Hayes Code um, film. And, of course, the code was basically, you know, at this point there was no censorship on these movies. However, the government and these fuckers were like, okay, so we don't want anybody to take over Hollywood, we wanna police ourselves so they enforced the Hays Code, which is basically this, you know, self censorship. Or, you know, they had a committee put together that would censorship this stuff. And for like the next, I don't know, twenty years I think. I think up until the fifties, uh, yeah, they were very strict on what you could show, what you couldn't show, uh, and everything else. But uh yeah, they eventually would kind of fade away and we'd, you know, start getting a little darker and Sexual oriented stuff, and you know, whatever the case is. So, uh, but this is a pre code movie, and you'll be hearing me talk about some of the changes that they had to make for these pre code movies. Uh, so in this one, uh, they, you know, again, this has been remade so many times, but they do add a new element. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure if this is in the mo- or the book or not. Maybe it is. I don't know if it's original here, but we add another character because up until this point, uh, Jekyll has been, or sorry, they actually call him. Jekyll, and apparently uh, that's kind of how it's supposed to be pronounced, but it just got stuck Jekyll. So everywhere else is always called it Jekyll. But apparently, like the dude uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, when he wrote it, the dialect and the way you pronounce things in that town where he wrote it is because it's Jekyll. But, yeah, it's Jekyll now. Anyways, uh, you know, in every iteration that we've covered, even, you know, on this show uh, up to this point, It's always been, you know, Dr. Jekyll, he's about to get married, and then, you know, he becomes Mr. Hyde, shit goes bad, and then, of course, you know, he dies, killing both him and Hyde together, blah, blah, blah. But here we get a new girl added, and her name's Ivy, and she's a barmaid down at, you know, the local tavern, and... Very free-spirited. Uh, Literally, she's definitely just banging anything that moves down there. And I'm not slut-shaming. It's, it, hey, we we need those kind of girls in our society. So, you know, she's down there. She's having a good time, uh, as is her right. Uh, however, uh, you know, Dr. Jekyll sees her one night out, and, of course, you know, he's smitten with her. Uh, But, you know, he's trying to be a good boy because he's getting married soon. So, you know, he, he pushes it down. But when, of course, Jekyll comes out, or sorry, Mr. Hyde comes out, uh, Hyde goes after her, and yeah uh her uh she's a very sexual character, and then a lot of the stuff with Hyde in her I mean it's you know it's heavily implied that you know they're definitely fucking and so in a thirties movie uh you know certain people just weren't ready for that yet, so yeah, when the Haze code uh, finally came out uh some of these scenes were uh shaved off or shortened or you know kind of retooled uh to kind of lessen the sexual content, if you will. Um, The makeup here is very uh, unique. Uh, They give... Dr. Yeah, sorry, Mr. Hyde, a more ape like look, like he looks more simian than anything else. Uh, in the previous ones, it just kind of like they, they altered a little bit, or you know, the guy looks a little uglier, uh, or what, you know, whatever the case may be. But here, it's like, no, flat out, he, you know, he, he's, he, he becomes Cro Magnum Man. He's he's an ape man, pretty much. Uh, but the transition scenes are really good, and I didn't realize this at the time, so I assumed it was just uh, transitions. Um, kind of like you know, when the Wolfman later on in the '40s, when he would kind of go from you know a uh, little bit of hair and then a little bit more hair, and then, you know you see him finally grow it all out. That um, you know they just kept shooting it, and then they you know transitioned to the next shot and the next shot, you know, and you know it's effective. You know it works. I assume it's what was it here, but it wasn't. What they did was they had a special kind of makeup, and they uh, since the movie's black and white, uh, they used very colorful makeup. And so, it was layered in certain ways. So, what they did was, was when they shot it, the lights they used, they had different uh, colored gels they put on the lights. So, you know, when you shoot it one way, your face would look one way. And then, of course, they put a different gel on there, and it would highlight these other colors, looking like your face is transforming. And that's how they did it. And I think that's fucking brilliant, because it really is a really cool, you know, I didn't think of it. I didn't know it when I was watching it, but I was like, that's a really cool, you know, way to do the transformation scene, you know, so... Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely pretty sweet right there. Um, so Frederick Mark got, or March got the job because initially they wanted to have uh, John Barrymore who did it in the twenties, and they wanted him to reprise the role. But unfortunately, he was bit, or fortunately, I guess however you look at it, uh, he was you know doing a different movie, couldn't do it, uh, and so Frederick March was you know brought in. And I guess Frederick March he like John Barrymore did a play. And Frederick March did the same play playing the John Barrymore part. And they're just like, well, Hey, he's a good substitute for John Barrymore. We'll just give it to him. And then he, you know, he would go on to play the role here. Um, It's funny because I've read a lot. Like this is considered like the, the version of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, uh, you know, and I'll go into my review about, you know, a little bit later, but uh, you know, this is what everybody, you know, like their version of it. And it, you know, I, I agree. I, I agree with it. Uh, however, they would remake it again like the next decade, I believe. I, I think it's like 41, 42, but uh, they had Spencer Tracy in it. And that one just wasn't quite as you know well-received or whatever. And a lot of people blame you know, Spencer Tracy or whatever. I haven't seen it. I'm sure we'll cover it on this show. So when the time comes, we'll get to it. But uh, Frederick March did so well. I mean, he actually won the Academy Award. Uh, and which is the first time in history that a horror film has won an Academy Award uh, which again uh, this big new boom of these horror films getting a lot of credibility a lot of credence uh, and every review that came out you know everybody loved this movie but the one thing they all said was Frederick March you know it was him you know it was you know all about this guy. Uh, this thing currently has a 7.6 on IMDb, uh, 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. And back in the day, it actually grossed $11.3 million, making it a huge hit for Paramount. Uh, for my actual review, I'll be honest with you. The first 10 to 20 minutes I felt was very rough. I just I, The story, I mean, we've seen it already. I mean, I forget how many we've covered on here already. We've covered at least four uh, Three to four, it easily. And so, it was just like, ugh, again, we're doing this again. And so, I honestly, I couldn't get into it. I didn't think there was anything special about this Frederick March. Uh, Even when he first turns, I'm still not feeling it. And I'll be honest with you, I think I kind of like John Barrymore a little bit better. Although, I like the look. Of Frederick March, but I think performance-wise. But again, I mean, it's the first time we're hearing him talk, so I mean, maybe I'm being unfair. Uh, John Barrymore was a silent, you know, performance. But either way, uh, but once the story gets going, I'm hooked. Like this edition of Ivy, I think really gave this a shot in the arm. That you know, the original three or four, you know, five, however many, because uh, I know there's a few of them were uh, shorts that we didn't cover on here. A few of them were lost. So I mean, I know, at this point, who knows how many times this thing has been you know redone. I wouldn't be exaggerating by saying, you know, maybe 10 times already, you know, this has been already adapted to screen. But, um, no, I mean, again, I think this whole Ivy thing, it just felt so much darker and sinister. Like, the way he treats her, uh, you know, at one point, you know, he's trying, like, he knows. Like, he knows everything that Jekyll knows. So, whenever, you know, she's trying to confide in Jekyll, because, again, even though Jekyll's trying to be the good guy, he's tempted. He, you know, kind of has this spot in his heart for uh her and he's even gotten neglecting his fiancee which honestly I don't blame him uh i i I forget the actress who plays Ivy but goddamn you know for 1931 yeah she's pretty pretty fucking hot and the fact that she's overtly sexual throughout it's like yeah i i can see exactly why you would you know want to leave the fight you know the fiancee for her you know but she's so helpless like every time you know he he beats her he you know he he whips her he he paddles her whatever and it, it's it's implied i mean they don't come out and show it obviously but it's like, yeah, he's raping her as well. Like, there's no doubt in my mind, and so she becomes a very sympathetic character uh, throughout all this. And so, yeah, uh, it just it hit a lot darker. And you know, I gotta admit, you know, it's not that. I'm trying to word this without coming off sound like a complete creep or sleaze bag, you know, it's not that. I you, know, you have to have those elements to make a great movie. It's those elements, though, that make you feel like it does give you this sucker punch right in your soul. And movies that can make you feel on any level, whether it's happiness, sadness... Anger, disgust, whatever. uh, That's a good thing. And honestly, that's what this kind of... It it made me go, wow, this is like... You feel bad for Ivy. You really do. Uh, You know, I know Jekyll's always kind of like the sympathetic character. I just don't give a fuck about Jekyll. Like, fuck you. You're a pussy. You can, you know, be... You can balance it out. Everything's good in moderation, right? You can be a bit of a dickhead, chrome magnum man, if you want, you know, on the side, but still be, you know, intellectual, and a gentleman on the other side, you can balance that shit out, but, like, Ivy has no chance here. And, yeah, I mean, the, the stuff he does to her is just brutal. Uh, the way he talks to her, you know, the way he's trying to trap her and set her up, and just verbally, you just see the fear on her face. Like, it's just, it's really well done. So, uh, yeah, Dr. Dickinson was right. I'm not honest, the, um, can't speak for the Academy, uh, for me personally, this may be my favorite movie uh, from 1931 horror film, or, or otherwise. Really, I think it's really well done. Again, it has a very slow start, or a very slow start for me. But once it gets going, it picks up. And honestly, I I got like to see it again at some point, just so I can kind of once I kind of know what to expect from the beginning, knowing where it's going to go. You know, maybe I'll enjoy it even more. But uh, yeah, number four, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde taking a drink. So up next, we're getting to some territory now. Like now we're going to get into, I don't know, maybe you guys are going to think when you see the final list of the five that we're talking about tonight, you're going to think Dr. Drickle and Mr. Hyde's is even down too low. And I would agree with you. But uh, the movie that does go over at number one, uh, we'll get there. We'll fucking get there. All right. So at number three, the uh, Bronze Skull winner of 1931, what is the number three horror film? Dracula. Uh, we know the story right now. It's, you know, Count Dracula, you know, tricks his accountant to, you know, get him inside London. And once he's there, you know, he's just running amok. He's, you know, targeting women. He's going to drain them with their blood. All that good stuff. Uh, so right off the bat, you know, this is the very first talky version of Dracula. Uh, in fact, it's this. I think it's the second version that's been... Out there, because we all know about Nosferatu, and you know uh, how people basically, uh, you know, didn't get the rights, the you know, clearance for that, and yeah, they changed enough, but they didn't change a lot. So, anyways, you know, Nosferatu was, you know, for a while they were trying to you know ban it and just completely destroy it, all copies of it. So, Universal side go a legitimate way with it, like you know we're going to make Dracula uh legitimately we you know bought the rice, we're gonna you know put it out there. And they really wanted to um you know, they've been making a slew of like again, I I, I we're horror films, but to them they were like these event epics, these dramatic, you know I'm looking for a word, these event films they've been making. Uh something on par with like the Hunchback of Notre Dame or uh the Family Opera, you know, something like that. You know, they've been making these big tent pole movies. Uh, these you know dark dramas, you know, but epically, you know, and so they wanted to make Dracula in the same vein as that. And at this point, Dracula was already a stage play. In fact, Bell Lugosi was already Dracula for you know however many you know years it was running. So he was already kind of you know the stage version of Dracula at this point. But uh, you know they they wanted to do this, and initially they had um you know Todd Browning was going to direct, and they had a uh, Lon Chaney locked in for uh, Dracula and another one of those big what ifs like what would it have been like if Lon Chaney would have actually been you know Count Dracula unfortunately he would pass away 2 years prior to the release or release of this film and uh, you know very sad for the you know not just the horror community but just the acting community in, in general like he was just a great performer and to my knowledge cuz and again I haven't been looking so I don't know but I don't know if did he ever make a talking film? Because all the films I've seen of Lon Chaney so far have all been, um, oh, uh, silent. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. You know if he's you know if he's done anything out there right now uh, that is a talking you know film or whatever. So I don't know how that transition would have been, but I don't know. I'd be willing to give it a shot. I think you know I don't know. However, with that said, you know, and the weird thing was the studio did not want to cast. Bell Legosi, like they were literally, they had like a list, like a massive list of people they wanted to put in there instead. But Legosi, you know, he fought for it, and even was willing to take like a ridiculous pay grade or a pay cut uh, to do it. And so, yeah, it just—I mean, again, I'm not sure what the reason for that is. It's like, you know, did you guys not go to the stage play and see what he can do? But I don't know if it was just name recognition. They, you know, they wanted someone bigger for the role, and at this point, you know, Bell Legosi was an unknown commodity when it came to film. But either way, Bill Lugosi finally gets it. And round out the cast, uh, the I think the other two, I mean, there's more to it, obviously, but the two that really stand out, you got uh, uh, Edward Van Sloan, who was uh, Van Helsing. He also played Van Helsing on the uh, uh, stage play as well. And then you got Dwight Frye, who plays uh, Renfield. And uh, yeah, he gives like an insane fucking performance here. It's just brilliant. So anyways, uh, the cast was set. Uh, and of course, with Todd Browning directing. However... It's been said, and I'll talk about this a little bit later when I give my review, but, you know, they said, like, Todd Brown just wasn't, his heart was not into this movie at all. Uh And the it, guys, it kind of like, the rest of the cast really wasn't into it. Like, they were, or they, it's not that they weren't into it. They weren't taking it as seriously. Like, the only person on this set taking it seriously was, like, Bell Lugosi. Like, he's the only one who's just, like, giving a fuck. And it shows, like, he does a great job. Take a quick drink. Ah, thank you. And, um... So, you know, it's said that, you know, Todd Brownie kind of, I don't know, kind of softballed it in there. You just kind of, uh, I he, don't know, he was just kind of sleepwalking, directing this thing. Uh, all the while, and I forget who it was they said, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been said that others were kind of stepping in for him, I guess, for a lot of this. But, I don't know, is what it is. Uh, however, this movie would basically uh, get... Uh, Bell Lugosi typecast he uh, after this he became Count Dracula uh, to this day when you think of Dracula and it don't matter which version you like you may you know once again I know with these old black and white movies you know, people today don't really like black and white I, I get that you know maybe you prefer the Francis Ford Coppola you know Dracula movie maybe you prefer uh, fucking Hammer, Christopher Lee, uh, Dracula movies, or maybe you're just into, like, Dracula Untold or all kinds of new fucking stupid fucking vampire movies. I don't know. But when you think of Dracula, you think of Bela Lugosi. However, this was kind of a, in his eyes, which I don't, I don't know. I guess I've never been typecast for anything except for a fat fuck doing podcasts. But, like, literally, that would be a blessing, I would think, uh, but, you know, he did not want to be known as Dracula. In fact, after this, uh, was done, he, uh, he only returned to the role maybe once, I think, for like a TV show, or he did one of the, maybe he, I, you know, I'll be honest, I hate to say this is a black spot on my, uh, resume here, but I have not seen the, uh, Abbott Costello, uh, Meet the Monsters, you know, movies. Uh, maybe he reprised it for one of those or something like that. But uh, he, he quit doing the play and did not want to come back for Dracula in any way, shape, or form. Uh, so, yeah, he just kind of grew to resent, you know, this role more and more. Um, you know, the other thing is, uh, they wanted, you know, this movie was like the first kind of out-and-out movie. Uh, horror film that Universal has done because again their other movies have more of a adventure or even romance considering what the plot would be uh, you know none of them were really just out and out horror and even like the cat and the canary was you know had a good amount of comedy you know thrown in there as well and in this one they actually cut a lot of the, I guess in the initial uh, thing and we'll talk about you know another version of this later on. Spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, But, you know, there's a bit of comedy that was initially in the original draft of these scripts that were taken out by Todd. So, this was just straight up, uh, you know, uh, horror. So, you know. Uh, Anyways, uh, when this thing finally did come out, you know, it was a huge success. I mean, it literally was like, horror has arrived in Hollywood. And once, once again, based on this, Everybody started making horror films. Reviews were, you know... The reviews themselves were overall pretty good, but I think it was more the crowd loved it more than, you know, the actual, you know, reviewers or critics at the time. Uh, again, this made uh, Bela Lugosi a household name. Uh, made him iconic. It was, you know, just fucking, you know, put him to the moon. Uh, however, the one thing a lot of critics said at the time was that the direction was a bit flat. And it is. Like, it. it's just very... It's static. It's just... I just kind of bitched about uh, the Phantom being really bad. And this one, literally, I mean, it's, it's not much better. I mean, you know, you got a few camera moves here and there, but for the most part, it's just, I don't know, uh, just doesn't do it for me. Which uh, I think maybe the Academy agree because that's why it is at number three. I just, you know, I'll get to my review a little bit later. We'll get to that. Sorry. We'll keep moving along with the story here. Um, with a... This movie again, the haze Code would later when it was get re-released. They uh, deleted two uh, scenes from, or uh, one scene and one sound, I guess I should say, from this movie. Uh, initially, they had this whole um, epilogue where Van Helsing would come out and you know basically talk to you and be like, you know, just so you know, you know, watch the shadows because you just don't know if there's a vampire there or you know something along those lines. Uh, and just, they they didn't want to promote the fact that. Vampires could be real, even as ridiculous as that sounds. The you know the the Hayes people are just like, no, we can't have that. Cut it. And unfortunately, uh, for whatever reason, that footage has been lost or it's been you know it's too old, too damaged. I don't know what the, the real story is, but either way, it's never been put back into the film in any version. Uh, the other thing was, whenever uh, the count gets staked, you know we don't see it It happens off screen, but uh, I like, guess spoiler alert. Sorry. Uh, in the end, we get you know staked. Uh, you know, he, he groans. It's a death groan. And uh, they didn't like that. And so they took that out as well. Uh, and so for the longest time, if you watched Dracula uh, either in a the theater or on TV later on, that was just complete silence there. And it wasn't until... Either the 90s or maybe even the early 2000s, I want to say 90s when it was on VHS, uh, they actually reinserted the groan into it so you get to hear Dracula die, you know, off stage uh, or off screen, sorry. Uh, so there were actually three versions of this movie to come out. Uh, as far as like the actual this Dracula, you know, this version came out and then they actually released it without sound uh, with uh, intertitles thrown in there because there were still some theaters who couldn't show. Talkie movies they didn't have the equipment the speakers I guess hooked up and so I guess you know in your smaller towns you still had silent theaters at this point and so they wanted to make sure they covered their bases and they would go ahead and be like hey there you go here's here's Dracula and it was you know silent uh I don't know if any of these versions even exist anymore I don't think they do so but again why would you want to watch a silent version when you have the talkie version and it's a good you know talkie version uh but the other thing is they had a Spanish language version and so the idea then was they wanted to shift these around the world, but um at the time I guess they didn't think about it, but they're just like, Well, we want, you know, people to understand what's happening in these. Uh and so they wanted and once again it was easier to do in these silent air because you could have the subtitles on there or whatever. Uh, and, you know, it was no big deal. You can change the intertitles to fit whatever language or country you're going to. But with the talking era, they didn't quite figure that out yet. So they were trying to figure out what to do. And so Universal would actually release, I think that year alone, or maybe 30 and 31. But either way, they did like three or four movies where they actually shot uh, the same sets, same scripts, but with a uh, Spanish-speaking crowd. Because their thought was like, we'll go to these markets with you know, a movie in their language by their actors or whatever and it wouldn't be as expensive because again, you know, they, it sounds bad but you didn't have to pay the Spanish actors as much as you did the uh, English speaking actors and then you did this, you know, you know, if they shot during the day you would shoot the Spanish version at night so you would get your production and all that shit taken care of in the same, you know, work day and you wouldn't have to worry about tearing down sets or building new sets for these people and so anyways, uh, the Spanish language came out but then, Uh, It, you know, didn't do as well uh, at all, like none of the versions did, and uh, it didn't really get a big box office return in Los Angeles, because at that time there was, you know, a lot of uh, Spanish-speaking people there, and they didn't even, you know, bother watching it, so uh, I don't know exactly when it happened, but they decided, like, hey, we can change the audio and dub it, and I guess that kind of became the innovation later on, so they were just like, oh yeah, fuck it, we can just, you know, do voiceover and it won't be a big deal, and so, you know, that was that. Uh, Dracula would, uh, not only would it spawn its own sequels, you know, Daughter of Dracula, Son of Dracula, uh, it'd also branch off into the Universal Monster Verse. you'd have, House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, you know, he was in that. Uh, I can't remember, I don't think, yeah, I don't think he was in... Uh, werewolf meets the Frank or Frankenstein meets the Wolf Man. I don't think he was in that one, but Dracula, you know, again, was a staple in the Universal you know horror films from here on out. Uh, again, always played by someone else though, because uh, you know, fucking Ghost, he's like I'm too good for that. It's like no, you you really wasn't. I'm sorry to say, but you, you wasn't. Uh, take the drink. Ah, sorry, shoved it. Um. So for my my personal opinion, when I watch this movie for the first time, you gotta understand I've already seen so many versions of Dracula. It's the same review I kind of gave when I you know say I watched Nosferatu, Well, you know I've already I know the story by heart. I've seen TV adaptations. I've seen at that point Francis Ford Coppola. I've seen um, oh I've even seen like, Dracula Dead and Loving it. Like you know I I've seen, I know the story by goddamn heart. And so it just comes off boring. And when you're watching it especially this version the direction is a thing like it is just like shit this is boring and slow paced and I don't know and I get it they didn't have the uh you know they didn't have special effects really back then so like every time they would you know talk about something it's always off camera you know look out there you know there's uh, you know they' the children on the night' they're, you know wonderful music they make and it's like, look at the werewolves out there. At one point, you know, he even turns into a wolf and runs across the lawn. We're not seeing that at all. We're hearing everybody else go, hey, look, Dracula just turned to a bat and, or turned to a wolf and he turned into the mist and whatever. And he just ran across there. It's like, we didn't see that shit. And I get it, you know, I get it. Uh, where I do give this movie credit, obviously, Bela Lugosi. I mean, he kills it. He fucking kills it as Dracula. He is Dracula. Uh, no matter how many. People we see, you know, don the cape and put in the fangs. There's only going to be one Dracula, and that is Bela Lugosi. Um, this movie itself, uh, it was given a, a 7.4 on IMDb, and it currently has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and it's, it's an integral part of horror movie you know, history, so I'm not taking anything away from it there. Uh, just on a personal level, it's not a movie I would watch probably, again, uh, or if I do one more time, and that'd be it. I just don't, I, it's not a movie I would return to very often at all. Uh, but that's just my opinion. So there you have it, number three, Dracula. Okay, I'm nervous. I'm getting sweaty now, because I know this is the movie that people are going to say should be number one. And, uh, and even though I just got in saying, I think Dr. and Mr. Hyde should be number one. Uh, I would say this was probably a solid two, possibly. Um, well, it's where it's at, yeah. But I, I, yeah I think number one, Belongs in the top three, but uh, we're getting, I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic. Quit trying to be foreboding with my foreshadowing here. All right, uh, what was the number two horror film of uh, 1931 and the winner of the Silver Skull Award? Frankenstein. I know, I hear you booing right now. I can hear you booing. Yell, you're turning the podcast off right now. You're just like, fuck this. That's the number one. I get it. I, I fucking get it. Uh, we all know the story, you know. Uh, Dr. Frankenstein He's trying to create life where there was none, and so he gets a bunch of useless body parts, stitches them together, and he creates life. Uh, again, once Dracula hit the screens, they were off to the races, and so right off the bat, more horror, more horror. And like I said, you know, Paramount came out with you know theirs, and you know, Poverty Row came out with a poor excuse with the Phantom, but Universal was like, we got more, and so they hit. Same year, Frankenstein. Um, it's funny because when this, you know, once the movie came out, uh, Bela Lugosi, he really wanted to play the doctor. He wants to be, you know, Doctor Frankenstein, and was kind of expecting to get that part. You know, after you know, again he kind of made money for him, but again he wasn't. I mean, I don't know what the deal was if he was like under contract in Universal, or if he was just, you know, again kind of getting paid just weekly. you uh, more of a uh, contract player, I guess you'd say. Uh, you know, not really a full time member of the staff, and so they quickly, you know, they wanted to use the fact that he was a monster in the last movie, parlay that over here, and they want him to play the monster, and he refused. Now, there's been multiple stories over the years as to why he refused. Uh, the story that was always going around initially was like, you know, he he wanted to play the doctor for one. Uh, he wanted to, you know, show his acting, you know, chops off. He wanted, you know, you to see his face. And so the fact that he was going to be in the makeup, uh, the brilliant makeup by Jack Pierce, um, you know, he 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 was he was you know that was beneath him. He was above it, and so he flat out refused. Now a story comes out years later that uh, it wasn't that necessarily; it was more that the script sucked. And apparently, this is somewhat true because when they do bring in uh, James Wells to um, oh direct this movie. He was just like, yeah, this script sucks, and we're rewriting it. And so it was rewritten right there on the spot. So, again, who knows the truth? Maybe it's a little bit from both. Again, it, it, I feel like, you know, they definitely kind of deem him a little dirty. I'm not saying they should have just gave in, but could you imagine if, if, if he would have been Dr. Frankenstein and then Boris Karloff would have been the monster? Like, that would have been fucking tight. Like, that would have been, oh, it would have been so badass. Uh... I know Colin Clive or Clive Collin, whatever the fuck his name is. You know he, he does great as Frankenstein. I'm not saying he doesn't, but it's like, oh, we could have had we could have had like this all star duo, but you know it is what it is. So either way, um, when he doesn't get what he wants, Bella goes, quits, and so they bring in James Wells and uh, you know they rewrite the whole you know whole script, and then that's when they bring in Boris Karloff. Um, you know the crew here, you know. I, I am sorry I don't have the names, but I've mentioned in the previous episodes, you know, guys like the set designers for, you know, Cat in the Canary, uh, Family Opera, you know, a lot of people who did uh, different, you know, costume designs or whatever. Like it, all these bit pieces or these uh, you know people who uh, you know added a little bit here, a little bit there to other horror films came together on Frankenstein. So it really was like this all-star kind of thing. And even if like, you know, at this point Boris Karloff is an unknown he is like like Bellegosi, you know. Previously with Dracula, he's about to you know knock it out of the fucking park. So, um, but we also get uh, you know as on the acting side. You know, I mentioned already, you know, Colin Clive, and you know, we got a few other guys that would uh, return later on in other horror films. Uh, but the one that really stands out to me is uh, you get uh, Dwight Fry, who was Renfield in the last one, and here he's the equally kind of insane uh, Fritz. Uh, which you know again, I always forget he's Fritz. I want to call him uh, Igor, or Igor, you know, depending on you know which which version you're watching, I guess. But uh, I always, you know, I always forget that Igor doesn't show up until you know much later, and is uh, played by Bela Lugosi of all people. Uh, so you know, it's you know Fritz. I, I just forget it. Sorry, uh, but either way, uh, you know he, he he puts in a, a hell of a performance. Uh, and then you know you have, uh, like I said, Jack Pierce doing the makeup. You had. Um, I, did, I had to research this guy. I didn't know who this guy was, but they had a guy named Kenneth Strick, Strickfaden. Faden. Uh, he apparently did, like, these lightning effects on the set and kind of invented his own little lightning, you know, Jacob's Ladder-looking thing. Uh, and, yeah, so he became, you know, very well-known for that, and he would push this on in further moves or whatever. So he kind of invented the, they were, like, called, like, a, oh, like, st- strict fading sticks or whatever, you know, he, he, they called him, you know, he actually, like, his name is still on that to this day, like, you know, when people use stuff like that, it's his work, you know, so, um, so, with the old director, and I forget that guy's name, uh, he wasn't no James well, I'll tell you that, uh, him and Lugosi, you know, when they walked and decided, like, we're done or whatever, they were kind of given, uh, the Murders of the Rue Morgue is kind of a consolation prize. That's one I haven't seen yet either. I'm sure I'll cover it, you know, with this uh, podcast. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, but, again, it was no... I mean, again, yeah, I don't know how well it did. I don't know my research about it. But, I mean, it was definitely no Frankenstein or uh, or Dracula. So, you know, again, it's it's the first step where you hear this a lot. You know, Ber- Boris Calloff and uh, Bella Lugosi at this stage in their career, they're both just Top stars, but as time would go on, Boris Karl Huff's star was always a little bit brighter uh, than Belagosi's, and this is kind of the first step of that, where we start seeing Belagosi not get the top billing and you know slide down the card a little bit, if you will. Um, and here's, I guess, you know, the first example of that. Um, yes, so I mentioned earlier about the. Uh, Hayes code and uh, yeah, this one had a couple of uh, major changes that were taken out. Initially, uh, they would both be put back in later on. Uh, you couldn't be blasphemous on these things, and there's a line, and I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry, you know, this is one. I mean, you're gonna like, like the movie, but I don't know it by heart like I would other horror films later down the road. But you know, paraphrasing, you know, whenever he's talking about, you know, he knows what's like to you know be a god, be like a god, or be you know whatever. And they didn't like that, so that line was stricken, you know, completely from the thing, uh, because again, can't be blasphemous. And then, of course, when Frankenstein throws the little girl in the water, they uh, had to cut that out. They didn't want to show a child, you know, and even though you don't really see her drown, you just see her get thrown in the water, and then it just cuts. Um, here, they just cut it out completely. But I think it's kind of funny because a lot of people have said like when you cut her getting thrown in the water out. And they, you know, later on her father's carrying her dead body back into the village. It's like, that's way worse. Like, what did that monster do to that little girl? Fuck me. And so I just think it's kind of funny. Like, in a way, they're trying to censor this little girl getting killed. But maybe, you know, it turned out way worse than it was supposed to be. So either way, uh, just like Dracula, Frankenstein was a massive hit and also spawned. You know, not only a star in Bo- uh, Boris Karloff, they also spawned many sequels. Boris Karloff come back for most of them as the monster, uh, and then later he would be the actual doctor. You know, as well, and uh, yeah. Unlike Dracula, whereas Dracula resented being Dracula... or sorry, Bela Gossi resented being Dracula. Boris Karloff, he loved being Frankenstein. He loved being known, or sorry, the, the Frankenstein's monster. Uh, he loved being the monster. Uh, he just loved acting, and he he was just thrilled. Even if he was going to be known as a horror guy, he never felt above it. He felt blessed to be, you know, working and just being beloved by an entire community of people. And uh, something that you know Bela Lugosi just never could bring himself to. And I think you know, that's why. Boris off got better breaks later down the road. Or at least one of the reasons I would say. Uh, in fact, the only reason he stopped playing the monster wasn't necessarily because he didn't want to play it anymore. It's because the makeup and the outfit was so big. And at this point, he was a he was a late bloomer in Hollywood. Like he didn't get famous till he was like in his late mid mid to late thirties, maybe even forties. So like at this point, like you know, he's developing like back problems or whatever. And there's rumors that like James Wells is a bit of a dick to him. I don't know why. Uh, and again, this could just be rumors. So if I'm wrong, you can correct me and you know tell me in the comments section. But uh, the rumor was like he was a dick to him, like would make him carry, you know, bodies up a hill and everything. And, you know, like you know, he's carrying Dr. Frankenstein up a hill, and he just make him do it over and over and over. So uh, you know, either way, he would eventually end up hurting his back pretty bad, and uh, yeah, he never did quite recover from that. Uh, he always had you know back pains up until the very end. But uh, again. He didn't stop because of uh, you know not wanting to play the monster. He had to stop because he physically just couldn't do it anymore. Um, this film has a 7.8 on IMDb. Uh, 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes. And this thing grows $12 million at the box office. Which again, 1931. goddamn, just killing it. Box office, kaboom. So, uh, doing great. Doing great. Uh, for me personally, I think this is an easier watch than... Uh, Dracula, but again, it's one of those that I kind of know the story already going into it, and that does kind of you know. I think the sequels are better. I think uh Bride Dracula, or sorry, Bride Dracula, sorry, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, much better. And then I think even the Son of Dracula, or goddamn, sorry, the Son of Frankenstein, is better. Or no, no, Ghost, sorry, Ghost of Frankenstein, whichever one, whichever one that had the the, the thirty one and thirty nine that had a. Carloff playing the final one. Either way, much better. And then, like I said, the character I always loved, I think, honestly, my favorite Universal monster is the monster, uh, Frankenstein's monster, because, I don't know, he's like the, he's the original Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers. You couldn't kill this guy. No matter what you did, you know, throw him into a fire pit, throw him into, you know, a well, icy water, freezing him up. He just found a way to come back every time. And it's like, he's like the first zombie, kind of, you know. He technically was, I mean, the first reanimated corpse, you know, in cinema history. Uh, and so, no, I mean, like I said, I guess is better shot, better acted. It looks, you know, once again, it's a easier watch to me than Dracula. But again... It's just such a story that, you know, we already know. I, I, anybody who's never even seen Frankenstein, or a uh, Frankenstein, would pretty much know where the story's going. Like, it's, you know, I don't know. Uh, it is what it is. But, no, uh, yeah, Frankenstein. And I, and it goes without saying, it's better than the uh, 1910 version we covered on here, you know, way back in the... Uh, we call that season one. I don't know if we have seasons or not, but you know, the first episode, the first few episodes we did, uh, we covered Frankenstein, and yeah, this definitely is better than that. So there you go, number two film, Frankenstein. We're moving on to number one. I just know I'm getting shit for this one. Should have told you I'm taking a drink. Sorry. Uh, that's a drinking game for you guys at home. I'm not taking a drink. You guys take a drink. How about that? So, what is the number one horror film of uh, 19? 31, winner of the Golden Skull Award, Dracula, and I'm talking about the Spanish language Dracula. Yes, send your hate tweets to us, send, send all your hate mail to us, I, I get it, I get it, I get it, okay? Probably you guys are credibility may have been lost in the uh, academy at this point, but uh, let's explain. So, Dracula, uh, we know the story, uh, you know, vampire going after the girl, And, uh, yeah, so, again, I mentioned previously, so I won't go back into, you know, why the movie's made. Um, But the thing was, the benefit of doing it the way they did it, and it certainly benefited this version of the movie. Because I think this is the only one that people will say, like, you know, from a filmmaking standpoint, this is better than the English version of Dracula. I don't think the other two or three films they did uh, Universal this way, I don't think anybody says that about them, but with this one, what the director did was, he would come in early, and he would watch the dailies of what they did, and then just make it better, because again, Todd Bryant wasn't trying, and you know, lots of just boring shots, and so, and again, the, the producers weren't really looking after him as much, so this version was actually a little bit longer, uh, had the comedy kind of thrown back in, and it has that visual flair. Like I said, the directing uh, is just so much better, and I think it does enhance it to a certain degree. Uh, not as that, but my God, they get uh, the girl. Uh, that's the one thing everybody talks about. Whenever I saw the special features of this, you know, they, they had a whole thing about it. And everything I've been reading uh, retrospectively, of course that the uh, lead actress and her low-cut top for 1931. It's like, dude, she, she she had the tits. I mean, that's just all there is to it. That Spanish girl had the tits. Shake them, mamacita. Shake them. So, again, uh, it had the visual quality over it. Uh, from, you know, directing, it was, you know, way better. Like, the pacing's even better. Uh, the one thing I will say this doesn't have, and I, I, I completely, you know, admit... It doesn't have uh Bell Lagosi. Uh I forget the guy's name, Carlos Velnuva or Bell. It's, Bel... it's Bella something. Uh yeah, I mean he he's no he's no actor. I'm sorry, like at all. Uh and there's no comparison. You just kinda wish that this director was doing the original one and they maybe just swapped girls out and I've been okay with a uh, you know, uh oh, who was she there? Nina? Not Nina, the other one. Doesn't matter. Definitely would have much rather had, you know, the hispanic version of that uh but no uh, unfortunately though this movie flopped when it came out because again nobody wanted to see it uh everybody wanted to see the english version of it it didn't draw a huge spanish crowd like they thought it would um however uh it would get kind of rediscovered years later like i want to say like 70s or 80s maybe uh people were watching it and uh i want to say actually um There was versions of it floating around, but, like, I want to say it was, like, rediscovered, like, in Cuba, of all places, which I'm like, that's so weird, because, like, weren't we, like, against Cuba during this time frame? So, I don't know. Either way, though, they were able to uh, get the sound and everything and, you know, re-release it with subtitles, of course. And, uh, yeah, people were able to kind of, not just rediscover but kind of appreciate it for what it is. Um, You know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, if you're looking for just, I guess you know, if you're clearly not into subtitled movies or whatever, which is a shame. You really, you know, shouldn't close yourself off like that. But I feel like you know, if you really want to see a different take on the material and a different look, essentially, uh, yeah, definitely check out the you know the new Dracula. Uh, for me personally, I do I do like this one. Uh, it was in my uh, they released a box set of uh, Dracula it had a oh it had like four or five movies in it. It was a uh, Daughter of Dracula. They had both Draculas and they had Daughter of Dracula. And I want to say like probably House of Dracula uh, if I'm not mistaken. And maybe another one. I don't remember. But either way. And so I watched all those first. I didn't watch the Spanish one until later because I was like, well, there's no continuity between this and the other movies. So I can just kind of take my own time on that. And I really wasn't looking forward to it because, again, I just got on watching the American version of Dracula, which is just dull and boring and slow. And so whenever I popped it in with no preconceived... I mean, I didn't read this stuff. I didn't know about, you know, what other people thought about this. It did kind of blow me away. I was like, holy shit, like, it is a much better film. And I would re-watch it later on. And, again, it was like, damn, like, this is actually just better uh, than the English version. And, again, I'm not taking nothing away from Bela Lugosi. He is fucking Dracula. But it's a movie... I got to agree with the Academy on this one. This one's just better. Uh, this has a 7.1 on IMDb and a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Suck it. English version Dracula. Uh, so there you have it. And again, you guys, I mean, don't completely hate on us. Give us your feedback. You know, what do you think? You know, the top five, how would you rank these films? Um, if you were to rank them. Like I said, I'm sure Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll Dracula would be a lot higher. I'm sure the English Dracula may be higher and this would be, you know, either four or five but, you know, I stand by the Academy. I don't always agree with them but I will stand by them. Dracula is the number one horror film of 1931 but not Dracula but, you know, the Spanish version. So, to just recap real quickly where we're at as we close out this week uh, and look back at 1931 in the world of horror. Uh, Dante Alighieri I know I'm killing that name was inducted into our Hall of Fame our Horror Hall of Fame uh, at number 5 The Phantom number 4 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde at number 3 and winner of the Bronze Skull Award the English version of Dracula at number 2 winner of the Silver Skull Award Frankenstein and number 1 winner of the Golden Skull Award the Spanish language version of Dracula So everybody, I hope you enjoyed this look back at 1931 in the world of horror. And let us know what you think. Thank you for joining us. My name has been Daniel Richardson on behalf of the Retro Horror Academy. And you're dismissed.